Okay, uh, we're going to be in uh, Revelation chapter 20. If you have a Bible, feel free to turn there or a device if you want to swipe there. Uh, there are parts of Revelation that you could go to and you say, these are the most well-known parts of Revelation. There are parts that have had much more ink spilled about them. And today we have one of those sections of Revelation that has gotten just a ton of attention throughout history. There's likely been more focus on these six verses that we're looking at this morning than on any other part of Revelation. And I think it's dumb, really. Uh, I, I think it's, it's not helpful. Now, that's not to say there are legitimate things that we need to look at, that we can learn from here, that we should be talking about. But the inordinate attention given to these verses I think has been excessive to the extent that it becomes unhelpful because then we just get so focused in on these six verses. And really, there's 22 chapters here that are all telling the same story. And so throughout Revelation, we've talked about our need to read this book symbolically. It is a, an apocalypse, meaning it is a symbolic book. So, so much of this book becomes confusing and it loses its meaning when we read it literally. So one example, like we've talked about the number 7 and the numbers 12 a number of times throughout this book. But once we move from the symbolic meaning of those numbers and we just hone in on a literal meaning, we begin to venture down a rabbit hole that is going to cause us to do all kinds of nonsensical things to the Bible. Revelation is a symbolic depiction of history. Revelation is a symbolic depiction of history. This is vitally important for us to remember whenever we're reading Revelation, but especially today as we get into these verses. So I want to read these verses that we're looking at today, and then I'll set the stage for what we want to try and accomplish this morning. Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'll be with us as we work through these verses. And I pray that you'll grant us understanding, but more, more than just information, God, I pray that at the end that we would hear the gospel and it would 
transform, reform our hearts. And so, God, I pray that beyond gaining information, I pray that our hearts would be built up in faith in Jesus. So would you do that in these moments together? Where we need encouragement, would you encourage us? Where we need to be convicted of sin, would you convict us of sin? And I pray that you would have sway as you should. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at the three main ways to understand these verses. So there's, there's three main ways we can, that throughout history these verses have been understood. Then, after we do that, I want to make an argument as to which one I believe works best with the whole of the Bible. Not just within the context of these six verses, but within the context of the whole biblical story. And then lastly, I want us to see how this theology, that maybe is going to be confusing for some of you, maybe you just want to check out how this theology is meaningful for us today. We want to let it preach to us here and now, because I have no interest in just sitting in ivory towers and theorizing about this stuff. It must first inform and then transform us. Okay, so some big words for us. These verses, I don't know if you heard this, but it talked a number of times about a thousand years. Okay, so a thousand years is a millennium. And so the debate that's found in these verses is regarding this millennium. And it's revolving around the idea of chronology. When is that 1,000 years? And so there are three positions that have been taken on this. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And so for the next five to seven minutes, I'm going to ask you, try and think hard here. Try and engage with this, and we'll get beyond the, the three definitions here, okay? But just brief definitions for us here on these three. So first of all, premillennialism. So what you'll find with premillennialism is that people in this camp tend to read these verses very literally, okay? So for them, the thousand years is a literal thousand years, all right? Additionally, they will read Revelation 19 and 20, so uh, I'm going to come back to Revelation 19 and give a little context as to where we were last week. But they read these two chapters as chronological events. So what happened in 19 is then going to be followed by what we're reading here in chapter 20 today. Okay, so premillennialism then. Jesus returns before or pre the 1,000 years. When he returns, he comes and he binds Satan. And this is occurring after the final battle of chapter 19 that we read about last week, stripping Satan of all of his power. At this time, he is physically raising Christians from the dead, and they are reigning on earth with Jesus for a literal 1,000-year period. And then, after that, final judgment is going to occur at that time. Okay. So what's going on here? This is all fully future. Okay, this is not happening now. This is going to be happening in the future. And in this view, during the millennium, Satan, Satan has no influence in the world. Okay, Satan has no influence during that thousand-year period. So in a sense, it's, it's kind of a utopia. All right? M- maybe it sounds very much like what we would envision heaven to be. 
Okay? So that's premillennial. Let's talk postmillennial. Now, Jesus returns after the millennium. Okay? So the thousand years happens, and then Jesus is going to return. And the millennium is marked by peace and a remarkable spread of the gospel that Jesus brings about from heaven. This occurs at an unknown time in history, as Satan is bound and unable to deceive people on earth. Jesus also raises martyred Christians, and they reign with him in heaven until he reigns on earth. So people who hold this view won't really know when the millennium occurs. They'll be able to, at the end, like, they'll look back and they'll be able to kind of count the literal 1,000 years when that happened, but they won't know exactly when it's happening. And they, like premillennialists, have kind of a utopian idea of the 1,000 years. Almost think like this Christian nation or this Christian world that's being unraveled. Although they they would state that there's still non-Christians in the world, that that's still part of the dynamic that's going on during the, the millennium. Okay, so that's pre-millennial, post-millennial, and, and just to be honest, like we, we could spend weeks on this, okay? So I'm, I know I'm going 30,000 feet, and I think most of you are going to really appreciate the fact that I'm just staying really high level with this stuff. Okay, lastly, a-millennial. So essentially saying there's not a millennium, in a sense. Okay, so it's a bit of a misnomer because there's still a millennium, but not in a sense. And here, let's, let's talk about this. So like post-millennialism, Jesus returns after the millennium, okay? But amillennialism purports the millennium is a spiritually defined, non-literal 1,000-year period of time. So very symbolic, okay, that constitutes the church age, which is from Jesus' death on the cross— until his second coming. Satan is bound at the cross, and this is really important, okay, the fact that Satan is bound at the cross, at which time his ability to deceive is exposed and nullified, though he is still at work in this world. The saints who come to life are at least the spirits of martyred Christians reigning with Jesus in heaven, if not also, most likely, a picture of believers in heaven and earth, reigning now through their new birth and first spiritual resurrection. Okay, so spiritual reading, symbolic. And even hearing that, you probably know where I'm going to go with my direction of this, my emphasis on this, because this is uh, a, a much better handling of it from a symbolic standpoint. But, so important here. Satan is bound at the cross. This is hugely important for us to understand, which means then that he's limited in power today and will be fully defeated at Jesus' return. Okay. If your head is spinning, it's okay. All right? It's probably happening for a bunch of us. My head is kind of spinning even, right? And I've been studying this for years. So, uh, I want to spend a bit of time here talking now about why I think a millennial is most biblical. Okay? So these other these other positions, premillennial, postmillennial, they they raise some things, and what when I was referring earlier to kind of some 
gymnastics, theological gymnastics, that's, that's what's happening in, in these other camps. And so I want to talk a bit about that. Okay, so first of all, I want to go back to Revelation 19 last week. Okay, we talked about Revelation 19, and there were two suppers going on there. Revelation is full of contrast. One of the suppers was, was called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay? This is Jesus gathering his church in heaven. You want to be invited to this supper. The other supper was called the Great Supper of God. Okay? And we got this picture of birds coming and feasting on the flesh of God's opponents. Those who hated God, those who did not trust in Jesus. Okay? And so there's this really vivid, visceral picture of birds coming and feasting in this supper. To be clear, one is a supper of blessing, one is a supper of cursing. You do not want to be invited to the supper of cursing. In this scene also, we saw Jesus coming back, depicted as riding a white horse. Okay, he's coming back and he's going to destroy his enemies in this climactic war. And it's this vivid scene that has aspects of finality. It's this massive battle that's going on. These climactic events that are occurring. It sounds very much like Armageddon. What we probably would uh, picture in our minds as Armageddon. The last battle. So the problem then, from a premillennialist perspective, is they read chapters 19 and 20 as chronological. Which means they see the final battle being described in Revelation 19 as not really a final battle. It's only kind of a quasi-final battle. Because then they see another battle needing to occur at the end of the 1,000 years. So it's almost like Jesus has to come and he's going to win the battle only to have to do it all over again after the 1,000 years. And so that creates some significant issues that we have to work through and wrestle through. Okay, amillennialism is going to read chapters 19 and 20 as two different perspectives of the same thing, okay? It's all part of what's happening together. They should be seen as the same thing. So I've talked repeatedly in this series how Revelation talks about repeated events, repeated judgments, repeated realities that are occurring throughout history. It's continually bringing up repetition throughout. And so this is where a hard, literal, strictly chronological reading can get really confusing for us. We try to fit square pegs into circles, and we have to do theological gymnastics. So chapters 19 and 20 make much more sense if we read them as describing the same reality. Jesus is conquering Satan, and he is gaining victory at the cross. That's what was happening at the cross, okay? He gained victory. And then it's speaking about the experience. In the, during the millennium, it's speaking for a millennialist, okay? During the millennium, it's speaking about the experience of the church, okay? From Jesus' death and his resurrection until his return. And it's helping us see in varied ways the return of Jesus and all of the defeat that's going to happen. All of the defeat of the beasts, of the dragon, 
of all of God's opponents that occurs within the context of his second coming and victory. So the encouragement then is read chapters 19 and 20 as describing the same event. Okay? Secondly, then, what's described here in chapters 19 and 20 is consistent with how we see things playing out in our current reality today. Or, if maybe we don't see this, the encouragement is that we should see this. We should experience this. That's God's intention for us. What we are experiencing today is what we have read earlier in Revelation, and it's also what we read throughout the New Testament. If we go back to Revelation 12, what we find there is similar language, language to what's being used here in Revelation 20. It says there, the great dragon was thrown down. Okay, this is the same language we're hearing in Revelation 20. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Satan was thrown down. Satan was defeated. And Revelation 12 is really clear to make a connection between Satan being thrown down and Jesus' death on the cross. That's what's happening when Jesus the Lamb is being slain. Satan is being thrown down. And then, through Jesus' death, his church is protected. His church is nourished. And that's what amillennialism is seen in the millennium. We see something similar in Mark 3 as well. In Mark 3, Jesus talks about going into a house and binding the strong man so that then you can basically rob the house. If someone's going to go rob a house, they first need to bind the strong man. And so Jesus is talking about this in the sense that he has come to the earth to bind the strong man, who is Satan. And that's what he's doing during his earthly ministry here, but moreover through his death and resurrection on the cross. This is why Jesus came to earth. He came to bind up Satan. And this is what we've read about in Revelation. We read about here in Mark 3, what we're reading now again in chapter 20 as well. Okay, going back again in Revelation, the amillennial perspective is again seen in Revelation 11. So part of what I want you to see is that this is the recapitulation. This is the repetition that happens throughout Revelation. It's telling the same thing over and over from different angles. Okay, so Revelation 11. It said there, And when the church have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, so again, this reference to the bottomless pit that we read about in Revelation 20, verse 1, okay, will make war on them. So after the millennium, okay, after the church age, Satan will be allowed to gather all those who bear the mark of the beast, and they will swing their flailing punches and wage their futile war against Jesus, where they will be defeated. As Jesus rides in on the white horse, symbolically, figuratively speaking. And this is going to lead to what we read about in Revelation 18, to the weeping, to the mourning, to the destruction of God's enemy. Because the things they had trusted in are being shown to be insufficient. So Revelation 11 depicts the same idea again that we're reading in Revelation 20. The cross is Jesus' victory. 
an initial victory, followed by a period where Christians testify, tell about Jesus' victory, are nourished through the gospel. And in this, the gospel advances. It goes forth throughout the world. Then, at the end, the beast rises from the bottomless pit to make war before his defeat. So what we see throughout Revelation is this consistent, repeated picture. Jesus claims victory on the cross. People then conquer through the blood of the Lamb. And this message about Jesus conquering the gospel goes forth. This message crosses over the earth. Though Antichrist have still gone out, the real power is found in the message of the gospel. And people are believing the gospel in the face of ridiculous suffering. And at the end, Satan will rise for his final decisive defeat at Jesus' return. Okay, just a couple other things I want to mention here before we get to letting this actually preach to us, okay? There's a large conversation here in Revelation 20 about the idea of resurrection, okay? So, premillennialists, they believe there are two bodily resurrections, which is thought to be described here in Revelation 20. Now, the problem is, two bodily resurrections is not found elsewhere in the Bible. That, that's not talked about anywhere else. And the amillennial view handles this by seeing a first spiritual resurrection, okay? When someone believes the gospel, they are moved from death to life spiritually, and then a second physical resurrection when Jesus returns. Now, that's super simplified. There's a ton of nuance around that whole conversation. I don't have time to go into that. There's also a ton of interplay with the rest of the Bible. We, we could spend multiple sermons just looking at other parts of the Bible, looking at this. We're not going to take the time to do that. But the reference, literal, the literal reference to 1,000 years that's also just a tough fit when we think of the rest of the Bible. There's been so much ink spilled on this and so much emphasis given to this literal 1,000 years, but the reality is it's not talked about anywhere else in the Bible. And so it's tough, especially given, to, to read this literally, especially given the symbolic nature of the rest of Revelation. I say over and over. It's not helpful to build a theology off of one verse or one section of verses. We should see the Bible as one big story, and we want to read these six verses within the context of the whole biblical story. Okay, let's hit pause there, okay? You might be like, whatever. What was all that? Disclaimer on this, okay? If you read this differently— if you disagree with amillennialism, we would still want to be in relationship with you. So we talk here at Center Church about issues that are open-handed and closed-handed. This is an open-handed is issue. Okay, you don't have to be an uh, you don't have to hold the amillennial position to be an overseer here, which is the most restrictive uh, grouping we have here. You don't have to hold the amillennial position to be a member here at Center Church. Okay, this is open-handed. We can live in Christian community and disagree on this. This is very secondary, okay? Gospel is closed-handed. 
this is an open-handed issue. Okay, so this is where I really want to get to, okay? If you hear nothing else, I want you to hear what I say the rest of this time, okay? We, I want this to preach to us. I want heady, confusing theology to matter to us. I want the Bible to make sense to us. And so that's really what I want to accomplish here in the next number of moments. So I'm going to do a, so we typically at the end of our sermons, we do gospel application, okay? And we call it gospel application, not application, because we want the application to be good news. We don't want you to walk out of here and the application be, now I have three or four things I need to do. The gospel is about what Jesus has done. So when you leave here, we want you thinking about, this is not what I have to do, this is what Jesus has done for me. Okay, so that's why we call it gospel application. It's good news. It's not something for you to do. It's something Jesus has done for you. So I'm going to do an extended gospel application here this morning. Two points. First one, Satan being thrown down has massive implications for us today. Massive implications for us today. If you have any idea as to what is happening in our world today, you probably look around and you see how messy everything is. It is messy. Life is hard. There's a pandemic. There's wars. There's cancer. There's conflict. There's depression. We have unceasing busyness in our lives. Life is full of many hard things. And we feel weary, don't we? We feel weary. Many of us feel hopeless a lot of days. We look around, and it feels like Satan is winning. Doesn't it? It feels like he's ma making major headway. Casey and I sat over lunch on Wednesday talking about the pervasive sadness in our own hearts and circumstances in our own lives that we're walking through, ourselves and with other people as well. And, and talking over actually means we bawled our eyes out for 30 or 40 minutes just reflecting on this life it's hard, really hard. The impact of evil is real. Satan gave his authority over to the beast that we read about earlier in Revelation. Antichrists have gone out. Sin and death are real. But, and this is the sermon that Casey and I preached to, our, to each other, on Wednesday, but our hopelessness, our discouragement, oftentimes conveys the fact that our eyes are not on Jesus. Now, please don't hear me say, if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, hardship melts away. I'm not saying that at all, okay? But our eyes do get distracted. Our hope has been placed on pleasures, comforts, and wealth 
those very things we were warned about not trusting in, not hoping in, in Revelation 18, just a couple chapters ago. Over and over, Revelation and the Bible has emphasized this phrase, the lamb who was slain. The lamb who was slain. This is the most talked about aspect in Revelation. Okay? The lamb who was slain. Over and over, we have been directed to the cross. That's what that's talking about. That phrase is talking about. It drives us to the cross. And the reason is because it was there that Jesus threw Satan down. And this is not just a a nice thought to have for us as Christians. He threw him down. And this has massive significance for us. Let's talk a little bit about what the Bible says the significance is. Romans 8.3 says, On the cross, when Jesus came, he was sent by his Father. He died for sin. He condemned sin. Sin is condemned. Jesus' death on the cross was the death sentence for sin. Sin has no hope. Sin is condemned. We've got to understand this. It's been stripped of its power. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, when we look at the tool that the Romans thought or desired for the cross to be, it was all about shame. The cross was all about shaming someone. As they hung there naked, the point was to make them ashamed. By dying on the cross, Jesus bore our shame for us. He did this because Hebrews 12, 2 says he was despising the shame that sin creates in us. Jesus hates what sin is, and Jesus hates what sin does. And that's why he condemned it. Jesus intended to expose sin for what it is. It is not what we oftentimes think it is. More so than this, he bore it upon himself. He took sin. Jesus became sin. All that ugliness in our hearts, Jesus literally, the Bible says, literally he became sin. All the mess of your life, all the mess of this world, Jesus took that upon himself, bore that shame. He became that on the cross, and he put it in the grave. And then Romans 6. Romans 6 speaks to how the power of sin has been broken. This is hugely important for us. Sin no longer has the capacity to hold us captive. We are no longer slaves to sin. Christians are slaves to righteousness, not to sin. The only power that sin possesses over us is that which we give it. You hear that? The only power that sin possesses over us is that which we give it. So that's why, why we hear this call over and over, kill sin in your heart. Flee from sin. 
the only power that sin has over us is that which we give to it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross is powerful? More powerful, far more powerful than sin. Do you believe, have you experienced freedom in your own heart and life through the cross? Do you actually believe your sins are forgiven? Or do you still feel you need to pay a debt? That you have to pay a price through your good works? Are your sins forgiven through your good works, through your penance, through your religious acts? Or are they fully forgiven through Jesus' death on the cross? My experience, personally, in my own life, and pastorally, through my relationship with others, is we tend to severely downplay the significance of what happened on the cross. We do. Because we want to make it about what we do. All of us have this tendency within us. We want the slap on the back. We want to perform well, and we want to hear Jesus say, well done, because of what you have done. The well done is predicated on us believing, trusting in what Jesus has done for us and freeing us then from having to try and achieve, accomplish something, salvation, that we can never accomplish on our own. This is the best news in the world. But when we downplay the significance of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we find ourselves wallowing. We find ourselves indulging in self-pity, feeling sorry for ourselves because we think we are stuck in sin. That's a lie. You are not stuck in sin. If you believe the gospel... If you believe what Jesus did for you on the cross, you are never stuck in sin. You aren't. Only to the extent that you allow yourself to be stuck in sin. Only to the extent that you are not believing the gospel to be powerful for us. We can't overcome sin on our own. It's too dark. It's too deep. It's too hard. But when we do find ourselves stuck in sin, it's because we're depending on us. We're depending on our capacity, our ability. And that's not the gospel. That's not good news. No one wants a yoke put on their shoulders. No one wants Jesus to look at us and say, save yourself. That's not good news. The gospel is good news. And the gospel is rooted in the cross. And that's why we want to have this well-worn path to the cross. Keep going back there. This is where hope is found. Jesus died for us. So we've got to be fixated on Jesus. We've got to believe what the Bible says occurred at the cross. We need to walk in its power. And so this is my invitation. Believe what the Bible says happened at the cross. Jesus threw down Satan. He disarmed the powers of evil. That is the best news in the world, if we believe it. Okay, 
So Jesus threw down Satan. That has tons of implications then for how we live in this world. And one of those is now is the time for mission. If we take seriously the millennial reign described in Revelation 20, we'll see the way that it has been fulfilled throughout history and in our day now. The gospel has traversed the world. The gospel has invaded countries that have tried to keep it out. The gospel has advanced in really dark places. The gospel is going places right now that we could not even dream or imagine in our own minds. We now find ourselves alive at a time and in a place that needs the good news of Jesus. In our places of work, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our relationships. We live in a place where false religion and perverted forms of Christianity are being consumed en masse. Jesus has become a prop, a ploy, a convenience, a power play, a political buzzword, a pawn. He's none of those things. Jesus offers hope. He offers forgiveness of sin. He offers sturdiness amidst uncertainty, joy amidst sadness and mourning. He offers salvation. Jesus is what we need and what those around us in this world need as well. Don't we want to be part of seeing hopeless people find hope? Don't we want to see people find rest instead of killing themselves with busyness, trying to find life in all the things that are actually killing them? Don't we want to see light invade darkness? Now is our time. The millennial reign of Christ. Satan has been thrown down. Jesus goes before us. Jesus walks with us. We have the most hopeful, sure word to bring to people, and that word is a person, Jesus. Now is our time to run with the best news in the world, not out of duty, not out of obligation, but because we have been overwhelmed by the goodness of grace. And we have been overwhelmed by the power demonstrated, the resurrection power demonstrated by Jesus at the cross.